my name is Brock Boldy. I've had the privilege of being the children's pastor here for more years than I can count. So it's been a long time, but it is a blessing to be able to be here with you. If you're joining us for the first time or you've been gone for a while, let me just kind of catch you up to speed on what we're doing. We're working through a series entitled Who We Are, and it's the hope of the elders that as we work through this series that we will all be reminded of who Calvary Bible Church is and who we are to be about as we eagerly wait Christ's return. So thus far in our series, we've, we've seen that Calvary Bible Church is to be a Bible-centered church, a worship-motivated church, a God-dependent church, as well as a mission-focused church. And each of these messages is on the church's website, calvarybiblechurch.org, or the abbreviation of thereof, uh, and worth the time to listen to, or re-listen to if you uh, uh, have already listened to it. Which brings us to this morning's topic, and that is Calvary Bible Church is to be a love-expressing church, a love-expressing church. Now that sounds really nice, but what exactly does it mean? Because depending on who you talk to, love can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. A quick search on the internet uh, produced these thought-provoking gems. Love is like water. We can fall in it, we can drown in it, and we can't live without it. Isn't that beautiful? It brings a little tear to my eye just kind of thinking about it. There's this one. Love is like a butterfly. It settles upon you when you least expect it. Oh, so, so lovely. But this, love is like a river, never ending as it flows, but gets greater with time. Boom. But wait, there's more. This one, this one's my favorite right here. Love is like jumping out of an, uh, an airplane knowing that someone else has packed your chute. You pull the cord hoping that a canopy opens up, but it could very well be a packed full of, I can't even read this, of dirty laundry and a half-eaten cheese sandwich. <laughs> that's love right there. I mean, that's, that's it. Or uh, love is like war. Easy to begin, but very hard to stop. And then who could... How could we not end with this one? Love is like a tornado. Picks you up off your feet and sometimes takes half your house. <laughs> done. My work here is done. I don't need to explain it anymore, right? But, you know, that's not the only thing that we see. I mean, if you go through music, music has a lot to say about, uh, about in love and offers us some keen insights there. I mean, just listen to some of these titles. And I've tried to spread it out over a wide range of things, but... Uh, going back to 1955, we have the four aces, which love is a many-splendored thing. All you need is love from the Beatles in 67. Love will keep us together. Come on, Captain and Tennille, 1975. Endless Love, Diana Ross and Lionel Richie, 1981. The Power of Love, Huey Lewis and the News, 1985. Addicted to Love, Glory of Love, Love Stinks, Love Bites, Can't Help Falling in Love. And Justin Bieber bringing us right into where our culture's at. Love yourself. Love yourself. Now, the problem, again, with these cultural views and these ideas of love is that they, they see love really as being nothing more than some kind of an emotion, this feeling that uh, just kind of consumes you, and thus it, it tends to override all logic and thinking. 
For all intents and purposes, our love view, our, our culture views love as this force that overwhelms them to the point that they are relegated to a victim status, really kind of assaulted in some sense uh, by this more powerful entity. What many attempt to classify as love, though, really can be classified in our culture as lust. Right? We see something that we desire, and we will do anything that we can to have it. We feel something that we've never felt before, and we will not be denied until our craving has been quenched. Brothers and sisters, this is not love. And although the culture we find ourselves living in attempts to define love in these ways, we cannot. We must not allow these false views regarding love to creep into our understanding of what true love really is. Our culture can't shape our understanding of God's word. But instead, God's word needs to enlighten and heighten our understanding of this culture that we find ourselves living in. Commentator Leon Morris offers uh, these words when he says this. He says, Because the Bible has some significant and distinctive things to say about love, we must guard against assuming that we know all about love so that we make the Bible parrot our ideas. It is important that we let Scripture speak for itself. We must go on to ask how its ideas affect our understanding of love and our attempts to show love to others. See, love is plastered all throughout the pages of Scripture, and if we bring a wrong or faulty understanding of what love really is, well, then we put ourselves in danger of missing one of the most significant doctrines to be found in the pages of Scripture. Listen to but a few of the verses that call upon us to love. Jesus spoke these words in response to the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisee lawyer's question regarding the greatest commandment in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples in John fourteen twenty-one. He says this, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Peter, in writing to the persecuted and afflicted church, penned these words in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. The Apostle John, in an attempt to combat the, the false teachers of his day, wrote in 1 John 4.7-8, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And, you know, I could stand up here and I could give you verse after verse, but I trust that you get the idea that that these verses are are beginning to point us to see the significance and the importance of love. Now, the Greeks had four different words to help them to differentiate between the different types of love. We, however, um, do not have this luxury in the English language. And as a result, we can bring a a rather confused and a convoluted understanding to our reading of God's word. We need to fight against this because true biblical love is much purer. It's much deeper. It's much more life-altering than any of us are understanding it to be. And we need to make sure that we get a handle on this. You know, in a culture that finds us using the word love to describe our feelings about coffee a movie, or even our pets. 
It's easy to see the uninspiring effect it can have when we come to the Bible and we read about the love that you and I are to have towards one another, towards God and one another. So my, my goal this morning is to challenge all of that. My goal this morning is to help each of us to better grasp the meaning of real, biblical, genuine love. A love that is grounded in the pages of scriptures rather than formulated in the hearts of a culture. All in an effort to remind us that Calvary Bible Church is to be a love-expressing church. With that said, let's open up our Bibles to what is commonly referred to as the love chapter. It's found in 1 Corinthians 13. Verses 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. This is what the Word of God has to say. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Please join me as we pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word. Dear Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are! And I pray this morning that as we gather together, and as we look at these these verses, I pray, Lord, that you will open our eyes. That you will help us to see what real love is like. That we might then take this understanding and this, this, um, this grasp of love, Lord, and we might be a church body of believers that, that, live, that live these things out. That we might uh, be seen by the world as a people that genuinely love. Not in some superficial way, but in a very tangible, real way. So, Father, right now, I pray that you just remove any and all distractions from us, that you allow us to really uh, tune our minds in to what you would teach us this morning so that we might be a love-expressing church that brings glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in his precious name. Amen. Well, for anyone who's spent a minimal amount of time in, in reading their Bibles, it's, it's uncomfortably obvious that, uh, that the church in Corinth had issues. And it was founded by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, and the, the church was located in a, a city that was characterized by drunkenness and, and immorality. The church struggled with all kinds of things and oftentimes seemed to waffle between this, this godliness that they wanted to live but also this, this worldliness. And as a result, the Apostle Paul wrote to them in an effort to, to correct them and in, 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 in an effort to encourage them to grow up. And to start behaving as those who have been bought with a price. To put away those childish things and to start living like they were meant to live as, as grown-up adults that have been saved by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not surprising, therefore, to find Paul bringing many of the church's issues, which he had already discussed early in the letter, back into his explanation of love. So he kind of finds a way to weave them back. I mean, we find terms like jealousy an issue that he addresses in, in 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Bragging, mentioned in 4.7. Arrogance, noted in 4.6. Seeking their own, referenced in 10.24. Taking a wrong into account, seen in 6.7. Rejoicing in unrighteousness, alluded to in 5.2. These issues and, and many others were in need of addressing because the church in Corinth was failing to love biblically. 
They were in danger of allowing their culture, the culture that was immoral and, and full of, of all kinds of, of terrible things, they were being shaped by that culture, and therefore they were not living as those who had God's Holy Spirit dwelling in them. As a result, many were misusing their spiritual gifts for their own selfish gain. So Paul, seeking only their good, sought to show them how unchristlike their behavior was. He sought to help them to see the supremacy of uh, living in love, authentic love, not the self-serving love that they were in the habit of practicing. Now, as I've mentioned earlier, the Greeks had four different words for love, and the word that we find being used in our text and primarily throughout the entire New Testament is the word agape. And according to J.I. Packer, the Greek word agape, love, seems to have been virtually a Christian invention, a new word for a new thing. Apart from about 20 occurrences in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it is almost non-existent before the New Testament. Agape draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in Christ. It is not a form of natural affection, however intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. It is a matter of will rather than feeling. It is the basic element in Christ-likeness. Agape love has been described as the best type of love because it is the type of love that God has for us. It's the type of love that no, no man in his natural in, inclination is, is, is willing to practice apart from the enabling work of the Holy Spirit. So unless the Holy Spirit is working in you, you cannot really demonstrate this agape-type love. Agape love at its purest and its noblest is a, is a love that comes from God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It is the love that God has shown to us. It is real love. Without this type of love, the Christian life is rendered completely useless in God's economy of things. Though one speaks with the tongues of men and angels, he's reduced to nothing more than a noisy gong if he's without an agape-type love. If one knows great and mysterious things and has the faith to move mountains, yet it is without agape-type love, he is considered as Nothing. If one sells all he has to feed the poor and suffers even unto death, but does so without agape-type love, he is benefited in no way whatsoever. See, the necessity of agape-type love is clearly seen as we look at passages like 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So you may be sitting out there right now saying, all right, Brock, I get it. We need agape type love, but what does it look like? How do I know if I'm practicing this type of love or if I'm being duped into practicing a love that has no biblical foundation to it whatsoever? Question that leads us right back to the text of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Because it's in this text that we find the Apostle Paul offering us a glimpse into the makeup of agape-type love. It's here that we find 15 traits that were meant to help shape our understanding of the truest and the most beautiful form of love that exists. And while this list of traits is by no means exhaustive, that is to say that agape-type love is not only these 15 traits, it is far more But it is to say that agape-type love cannot be any less than these 15 traits. 
So each one of these 15 traits is meant to assist us in practicing true love, real love. And they're just as applicable to our life now as they were to the audience that Paul was writing to in Corinth. And we need to be a people that are under the influence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate this type of love. Lou Priola gets us off to a good start when he writes about love. He says this, Biblical love is not primarily a feeling. In fact, such love isn't even an emotion primarily. Love is something you do much more than something you feel. It involves motion much more than it does fleeting emotion. Each of the 15 terms that is used to describe love should be interesting to note is that it is a their verbs. Now, isn't it interesting that God would choose to use a series of verbs to define the nature of love as opposed to a host of adjectives? And so using both positive and negative terms, Paul helps us to see that a, a person who is striving to love biblically will seek to conduct themselves in a manner that is reflective of the love that is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Church historians say that Christianity spread so rapidly across the ancient Roman Empire not because of all of the cleverly devised arguments, all of the apologetics to make it show that it's the the most rational thinking uh, religion out there. No, it, it grew because of the love, the infectious love that was seen amongst its people. In describing the first century Christians to the Roman emperor Hadrian, Aristides said this, he said, They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who will hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers and sisters in the usual sense, but brothers and sisters through the Spirit in God. See, brothers and sisters, love is not something that is solely felt. It is something that is clearly seen. And the first quality that Paul encourages all believers to display is patience. Love is patient. Or to phrase it a bit differently, love is long-suffering. Now, this particular term always refers to being patient with people and not things or circumstances. I mean, how difficult it is to show patience towards someone who's upset the balance in nature of slowing down or altering our, our very well-thought-out agendas. How difficult it is to be long-suffering with the spouse who continues to squeeze the toothpaste tube from the middle of the tube instead of rolling it from the bottom like a civilized person. How much we struggle with being short-fused when our kids have the audacity to act like kids, even though they know it bugs us so much. How impatient we become with those people in our lives who should know better and yet continue to disappoint us with their choices. I mean, I don't know about you, but have you ever felt like there was this conspiracy that was out there? This conspiracy that people have come up with and they've made it their aim to irritate you? I mean, they'll not rest until they have accomplished their mission of pushing your buttons so that you have no reasonable alternative but to explode. And if you can relate to that, then allow me to let you in on a little secret. The problem is not with them. The problem is with you. The problem is that you are failing to love as God's word calls you to love. You are failing to love as the one whom you are claiming to follow has loved. 
First Timothy 1, 15 through 16 says this, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Brothers and sisters, how patient is God with you? How long-suffering? How would any of us fare if our Lord dealt with us in the same way that we deal with others? Would you even be here today? Would you still be alive? But let's take this one step further, for this is where the Word of God takes it. Are you patient with those who purposefully injure or attack you? With those who might be considered your enemies? The neighbor who's always griping and complaining about you and your inconsiderate ways. That coworker who's continually slandering you and your work. The Christian's called to love his enemies. He's called to long-suffering as he trusts the Lord to right the wrong, to fix that which is broken, realizing that God's timing is not always our timing. Psalm 94, Psalm Chapter 90, verse 4, reminds us of this. For a thousand years are but a day to the Lord. See, love is patient. And it's the patience of God that has done a great work in us. The next quality that we see in our list of verbs conserving love is kindness. Love is kind. Love is kind. To think of a love without kindness is to think of spring without flowers. I love this time of year where you get all of these blooms. But imagine spring coming and there being no flowers. Well, that's kind of uh, love without kindness. Kindness has a type of influence that makes everything it touches uh, better and, and brighter. And yet, many professing believers are anything but kind. Oh, they may be orthodox, all right. They have their doctrine down. They know their creeds, and yet they lack kindness. They speak truth, but it is a truth that has not been seasoned with grace such that it benefits the hearer. William Barclay comments that so much Christianity is good but unkind. There is no more religious a man than Philip II of Spain, and yet he founded the Spanish Inquisition and thought he was serving God by massacring those who thought differently from him. You see, many are quick to speak the truth, and yet they do it without taking into consideration the kindness of of love. When you deal with non-believers or people that you're not even sure where they're at spiritually, are you kind? Are you? In our hatred for sin and the injustices that we daily see going on in our world, if we're not careful, you and I can forget about the kindness of God. We can forget about the, the gracious truth of Romans 2, 4, where it says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of, the, of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not his wrath. It's his kindness. And likewise, it's going to be your loving kindness to others that will enable them to see their need for Jesus. It will be our agape-type love that will show them the greatness of our Lord and Savior, not our demands of purity and justice. Love is kind. 
The next eight qualities that we find regarding love are expressed in a negative manner. That is, we're told what love isn't or doesn't do. First on this list of negatives is the fact that love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. The word jealous here can be used in both a positive or a negative way. Positively, this word means zeal or um, enthusiasm. Negatively, though, it generates a a wrong feeling about the good fortunes of another and is, is usually described with words like envy and bitterness. You know, each of us has experienced these feelings as we've watched others get the praise and the attention that that we so desperately want. We felt resentment over the fact that God didn't make us a certain way, that he didn't make us as attractive as so-and-so, and he didn't give us the dynamic testimony of, of this person, that he didn't endow us with some spiritual gifts of that person, that he didn't afford us the same opportunities in life as he did this person. I mean, the list could go on and on, and we're all very natural at seeing that which we don't have instead of praising God for what we do have. And really, jealousy is the desire to have something for yourself that somebody else has. It's, it's failing to be content with what you have and becoming embittered over your perceived lack of that which others possess. The story is told of how the devil was crossing the Libyan desert when he met a number of his people tormenting a holy hermit. They tried to involve the hermit in sins of the flesh, tempting him in every way they knew to do, but to no avail. Steadfastly, the sainted man shook off all their suggestions. Finally, after watching their failure and disgust, the devil whispered to the tempters, What you do is too crude. Permit me one moment. Then the devil whispered to the holy man, Your brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. And a scowl of malignant jealousy at once crowded the serene face of the hermit. That, said the devil to his imps, is the sort of thing which I should recommend. You know, if some of you spent as much time utilizing what God has entrusted to your care as you do thinking about what he's entrusted to somebody else's, I'm confident the Calvary Bible Church would be a completely different church. Love is not jealous. And we need to make sure that we are not either. Next on the list, love does not brag. Love does not brag. Maybe we left one out on there, but we'll get to that. Love does not brag is the next one. This simply means that the person who truly loves does not put himself on display. In other words, they get the fact that it's not all about them. In fact, they realize that it's not about them at all. It's amazing how quickly some of us are to brag about things that we really don't have much control over. You know, earlier in his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do any of us have that we did not receive from God? The fact that you have legs that can walk, eyes that can see, ears that can hear, hands that can hold, minds that can think. These are all things that we have absolutely no control over in our own lives, and yet they're vitally important in shaping who and what we are. The only thing that any of us should ever seek to boast about if we are Christians is Jesus Christ. Not in, a, not in any way boasting about our having the sense to choose him, but rather in his amazing choice of us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is truly amazing. This is something that's worthy of boasting about. Who cares about how smart you are? 
There are smarter people that are suffering in hell right now. Who cares about how beautiful you are? There are more beautiful people than you waiting and rotting in hell right now. Who cares how athletic or musical you are? There are greater athletes and musicians that are being tormented in hell right now. Brothers and sisters, real love does not seek to draw the applause of men by bragging about one's accomplishments. True love does not seek to grab the spotlight so that it can tell others how wonderful it thinks it is. Now, love, love does not brag. This brings us to our next point. Love is not arrogant. It is not arrogant. This is a term that is closely related to bragging, but whereas bragging is something that we say, arrogance is more of an attitude that we possess. An arrogant person is one who thinks more highly of himself than he ought to. This type of person has an inflated view of themselves, and they feel like they have a a greater impact on the world than they actually do. An arrogant person can easily be of the mindset that God sure is fortunate to have somebody like me. An arrogant person tends to forget that God is so much bigger than they are. You know, Elijah, as great a man as, as, uh, of God as he was, had an attitude of arrogance when he shared with the Lord that he was the only one left in Israel that was zealous for him. But God had news for Elijah, didn't he? As he gave him the instructions about what was about to happen. In 1 Kings 19.18, God tells the mighty prophet, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. You see, Elijah had given himself too much prominence. He had said, God, I am the only one. I'm it. Nobody else has, has a zeal for you like I do. There's nobody else left, God. Nobody else in Israel. They've all deserted you to follow after Baal, but not me. But what does God tell him? God said, I still have 7,000 other servants that were being faithful. To, and they're going to continue to be faithful to their calling. Because I am a God that doesn't just need one man. And these 7,000 would continue to proclaim the greatness of God with or without Elijah. There's no one man by which the kingdom of God is completely dependent upon. God is fine without any of us, so let us never become arrogant in our service to him, for love is not arrogant. Next in the list of love's qualities that are displayed in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 is the fact that love does not act unbecomingly does not act unbecomingly. In other words, love is not rude. Love is not rude. There are a number of professing believers that put little to no effort in practicing any form of courtesy. The words of please and thank you very rarely cross their lips. When they sit down to eat with their family, they demand that the food that they want be passed be passed to them immediately. When they go out to a restaurant... They treat the waiter as if he were some sort of slave whose sole purpose in life is to be at their beck and call. There are no pleases or thank yous because in their minds, that person is simply doing their job. They're getting paid to do a job and they're going to take care of me the way that I demand them to take care of me. They don't deserve a please or a thank you. They're at work to serve me. I can't help but think about how unbecomingly many professing Christians choose to be simply because our society deems it okay. Man, it is not a sin to hold the door open for a lady. It's courteous. Husbands, it's actually a good thing if you make it a point to get your wife's door for her. 
Odds are you did it when you were trying to show her what a great husband you'd make, so keep doing it. Wives, it's not polite for you to roll your eyes at your husband when he asks you to do something for him. It's not polite to keep asking him over and over and over again in an effort to help him to practice the fine art of mutual submission. And when you do ask him, ask kindly. Don't be rude. Young people, in regards to your parents, don't speak to them as if you were speaking to your friends. In fact, stop speaking to your friends as if you were speaking to your friends, right? (laughs) And don't even get me started with siblings. I mean, some of you are just flat-out rude. And it needs to stop. If you are a professing believer, you are not to be this way. Love is not rude. The next thing we find out about love is that it does not seek its own. It does not seek its own. You know, you and I live in a nation whereby the the Declaration of Independence tells us that every man is endowed with certain unalienable rights. And I have a deep appreciation for these so-called rights and yet fear that they have allowed many to seek their own interest. May it be so bold as to say that if you are a Christian, you do not have a right to all of your rights. No true Christian who is seeking to love God and his neighbor can fully exercise his rights or liberties because the more that you love God and the more that you love your neighbor, the less selfish you will be. Paul makes this point perfectly clear in an earlier section of this letter in, in, in 1 Corinthians. In a, in a section whereby he's talking about the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, he writes in chapter 8, verse 8 and 9, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You see, the selfish person is not concerned for the welfare of others. He only thinks of himself. His thoughts never wander far from his wants, his needs, or his rights. Selfishness is a terrible monster that you must go to battle with each and every day. Marriages are falling apart all around us because husbands and wives are failing to see how self-focused they are becoming. She doesn't respect me. He doesn't take the time to lead me. She doesn't care about meeting my physical needs. He doesn't know how to communicate with me. See, these are, these are real issues. And clearly, they need to be dealt with. But they need to be dealt with in love. It's really easy to see the faults in other people and really hard to see the faults in ourselves. See, our selfishness blinds us to the fact that we are part of the problem. That much of what we are doing is being done in selfishness and empty conceit. Our focus is is so inward. My wants, right? My desires, that we fail to consider that which is best for those around us. But notice again what our text says. Love does not seek its own. Next up we have love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. True Christian love never uses the sin of another as an excuse to sin. We may try to, but in the end we see the futility of it. When somebody sins against us, the natural human response is to want to retaliate. We want blood. The Old Testament law that was to govern the nation of Israel even made allowances for this. And some of us that love this, we love to go to those Old Testament references. But then Jesus came along. And Jesus taught his disciples something completely different, something that would be completely alter their natural way of thinking. He taught them to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecuted them. 
fact, the Apostle Paul echoed these thoughts in Romans 12, 17. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. When someone sins against us, we are not to pay them back in kind. Instead, we are to pay them back in kindness. Some of you are easily provoked and quickly respond in anger. This is not how God has called us to live. Not love, real love, is not provoked. Moving along, we find the next quality of love, that being love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. This simply means that love does not keep a record of wrongs done. It is forgiving. It has been said of Abraham Lincoln that he never forgot a kindness and never remembered a wrong. The unwillingness to forgive those who have sinned against you is a tragic thing. I fear for the souls of those with unforgiving spirits, for I cannot help but wonder how little they grasp the magnitude of their own sins before a holy God. I cannot help but fear that they have missed the good news of having their sins forgiven, that they are in some way thinking that their sins are not so bad as to warrant hell. Anyone who is willing to receive God's forgiveness for their sins and yet not grant forgiveness to those who sin against him is the greatest hypocrite that the world could ever see. Love could and should keep a record of creditors, but it must never keep a record of its debtors. Since Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, their sins are removed, biblically, right, as far as the east is from the west. They are hurled into the depths of the sea. They are hidden behind God's back. Since we have received such great forgiveness, Christians need to be the most forgiving people in the world. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Which brings us to the last of the negatively stated qualities about love. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love finds no pleasure in the presence of sin, whether it be in, in our own lives or in the lives of others. Some Christians find it stimulating to talk about the failures and the faults of other Christians. It's almost as if they delight in the fact that sin has reared its ugly head so that they have something to talk about. William Barclay got it right when he wrote this. He says, It is one of the queer traits of human nature that very often we prefer to hear of the misfortune of others rather than of their good fortune. It is much easier to weep with them that weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. You see, too many professing believers find too much pleasure in the hearing and telling of others' moral failures. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So that takes us through our, our negative list. Now we're going to jump back over to the positive list of what love is and what love does. And we got uh, the last five that we're going to try to work through really quick. And here's the first one. Love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. Riding on the heels of not rejoicing and prevailing of sin, Paul wants us to see that love delights in the sharing of that which is good and true. Where there is Christian love, there is truth, and it makes the believer's heart glad. God's word calls us to walk in truth, according to 2 John 4. And as we do this, there is much joy. When a Christian is basking in that which is true, the reading of God's word, the intimacy of prayer with God, the fellowship with other believers, his life is as it should be, and it does his soul good. To be absent from these things is to be away from that which is true, and this can only lead us to despair. Love longs to be surrounded with truth. It delights to be in truth's presence. Brothers and sisters, if your joy is in the things of this world, the things that are passing away, 
then I urge you to examine your life to see if you are truly living in faith. If we are genuine believers, then we will seek to be around others that love God and love his truth. Love rejoices with the truth. Next, we find that love bears all things. Love bears all things. This simply means that love is able to patiently endure any insult, wrongdoing, hardship, or burden that may be brought upon you by someone other than yourself. It, it, it could also have the sense of covering, whereby it seeks to protect others from harm. If this is the case, then we need to understand that sin is never protected, only the sinner. 1 Peter 4.8 reminds us of this truth that love covers a multitude of sins. Whatever the case may be, the greatest display of this truth is found when one looks to the cross. Because it's at the cross that we find Jesus bearing the full weight of our sins. It is there that we find our Savior offering his perfect life in our stead. It is there that we find our sins being washed away by his blood. How amazing a thing it is that one such as he should die for one such as us. God's love is truly an amazing love, and a day must never go by in which you and I are not completely and totally astounded by this great love for us. That he willingly, Jesus willingly took our place. He took upon himself all of our guilt and all of our shame. Why? So that we might be with him forever in heaven. What an amazing God. Love bears all things. Moving along, we find that love believes all things. It believes all things. This does not mean that love is blind and easily deceived, but it does mean that it is not cynical or suspicious of everyone. How sad it is when Christians go around thinking the worst about each other. I don't know if you've ever done something like this, but I know I have. Have you ever attempted to play God by thinking that you could rightly discern someone's motive without really talking to them about it? In other words, have you ever just assumed that the reason somebody said what they did or acted in the way that they did was because they had an evil and wrong motive? Well, love doesn't do that. See, love believes the best about someone until it's reluctantly forced to come to some other conclusion. Oh, brothers and sisters, how many needless disputes could be avoided if we but practice this one quality of love? There's a principle in our legal system that requires that the government prove the guilt of a criminal defendant, thus relieving the defendant of any burden to prove his or her innocence. Simply stated, it simply means that a person is innocent until proven guilty. I find it interesting that a system which takes no directive from God would have a maxim like this in place where when so many from the Christian community who have a directive from God fail to practice this in our dealings with one another. I don't know if we become jaded because of the countless failings of those in whom we have placed our trust, but the bottom line is that love requires Christians to believe the best about each other. And when people fail, and they will, you and I have a responsibility to still believe the best. It requires us to believe the best about each other. We need to trust that when they fail, God will heal them. And he will restore them. Love believes all things and believes that God is big enough to do that. Next on the list of love's qualities is love hopes all things. Love hopes all things. Love is an eternal optimist. 
For even when we are let down by the failings of others and their apparent lack of responsiveness, we know that we serve a God that is capable of doing far more abundantly than you and I could ever dream or imagine. The problem with many Christians is the fact that they don't see God rightly. They don't see Him for who He really is, a God that can do amazing things. Do you believe that the one who simply spoke this world into into existence is able to restore a fallen brother or sister? Do you believe that he's able to change your heart and conform you more and more into his glorious image? Do you believe that he's able to save that unbelieving parent, spouse, sibling, son, daughter, friend, neighbor, co-worker? Do you have the courage and the faith to hope that he'll actually do it? Hope is a powerful thing when it's placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It can make the impossible possible when it is securely anchored to the foot of the cross. Love hopes all things. The last and final quality of love that we find from our text this morning is that love endures all things. Love endures all things. According to Charles Hodge, it is used in the New Testament, this, uh, this term is used in the New Testament to express the idea of sustaining the assaults of suffering or persecution in the sense of bearing up under them and enduring them patiently. Whatever happens to us in this life, no matter how great the loss, no matter how deep the hurt, let us never forget that God will give us the grace to endure it. James 1, 2 through 4, a very meaningful passage in my life says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, if we endure, if we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, we will become like him. We will be conformed into his image and we will become joint heirs with him. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't miss that. Don't let this, the, whatever momentary afflictions you're going through right now, the, whatever those things are, even if they don't feel like they're momentary or even light, don't let those things get in the way of your eternity with Christ. Never lose sight of, of that great promise that we have as believers. And endure until the end and I assure you that you will not be disappointed. God is good, and in his word, he helps us to see how we are to live. And quite honestly, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't mention to you that it will be impossible for you to practice this type of love that we've talked about this morning without having placed your faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ. You and I are powerless to live this kind of, to live this way, to to have this kind of love. We don't have it in ourselves. We need God's Holy Spirit working in us. We need to have turned from our sins and trusted in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ. When we do that, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us and empowers us to start to live differently. Again, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we're not going to ever sin. It just means that we now have all of the tools and resources to live differently. We are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer have to obey sin. And when we have God's Holy Spirit working in us, you and I can enjoy the blessing of loving far purer and far greater than we ever have before. This is real love. This is the kind of love that God's children are called to walk in. This is the kind of love that we here at Calvary Bible Church are trying to live out practically each and every day. Agape-type love is far more than these 15 traits, as I've already said. But again, it is by no means less than this. 
And you and I need to make sure that we are practicing these things and doing these things because that's what love is. Love does. It's not just an emotion. It's not something that comes upon us that we have no control over. It is a choice empowered by God's Holy Spirit to live differently so that the world can see what a great God we have. This, this is love. And may it be said of us here at Calvary Bible Church that we are a love expressing church. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you for this time that we have together. I pray right now, Lord, that you will just uh, do a work in us, that you will convict us of our sin in those areas where we have failed to live as we ought to live. Lord, help us to to love biblically. Help us to see where the world has crept in and, and tainted our love. And Father, remind us of how we are to love as you've laid it out for us in your word, as you've given us the picture-perfect uh, person in Jesus Christ to, to model love after. We thank you, Father, and we do just pray that you will do a great work. And we ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.